Hi, folks, and welcome to this week's Office Hours. Today's conversation is about sexual assault on campus and Title IX. If you or someone close to you is a survivor of sexual assault, please reach out to the resources available to you, including RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at RAINN.org, or call their hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. Hi, my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, we talked to Chadni Ja about Title IX. Hi, Chadni. How are you? Hi, Professor. How are you? It's good to see you. Yeah, it's been so long. I know. It's been a while, and now you're graduating from college. Yeah. How does that feel? It's bittersweet. I think I'm going to miss having my friends within a five-minute walking radius and going to get late-night cookies at YZ's and walking around the quad, but... I'm excited to start a new chapter in my life and to try something different. Well, congratulations on your Fulbright. Thank you. <laughs> um, which is very fancy research award, <laughs> and you'll be doing research in India around violence. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your research there? Sure. So I'm going to be going to Bangalore. It's in South India, and I'm going to be analyzing the effect of this law that was passed after the infamous New Delhi gang rape case. Um, and the law basically expanded legal protections for women about sexual harassment. It expanded the definition of some forms of sexual violence. And I want to see how that law has affected the legal system in India, whether the courts are overloaded or processing the cases properly, but also whether as a result of the law, an increase in reporting of these crimes is because the system's actually working, or if it's not because of the law and these incidences of sexual violence are just increasing naturally. I think this is so interesting about um, you're doing the one thing that I always wish students do, and that is um, you were very much engaged with the issue around um, campus assault in Title IX, which is a critical issue that all institutions are facing. And one of the one of my biggest suggestions, and it's not a critique of the way we organize around issues of sexual violence are the types of violence that don't happen on college campuses, the types of violence that happen in the home, that happen in um, prisons and juvenile detention centers, that how do we think about the work that we do on campuses as really kind of also meeting a need elsewhere? So I think it's really cool that you're going to think about it um, on a state level and in a different international context. So I really applaud you for that. But um, I want to talk about your incredible leadership around the issue of Title IX. I mean, you've really done, in a very short period of time, some really important work nationally and on our campus. So how did you move in that direction in terms of your involvement and your activism? Sure. Um, So I had a friend who was sexually assaulted our freshman year, actually didn't know about it until much later in my sophomore year. And it's funny because usually when people hear that, they think, oh, it's because of your friend's assault that you started doing this work. But I actually started it on kind of a parallel level. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't actually know about it until after I started getting really involved in the issue of campus sexual assault. So part of me wonders whether subconsciously I I knew something was going on and I I really don't know. But um, yeah, it just kind of came to my attention that 
as a women and gender studies major, um, that there are some issues around sexual violence in college campuses that were affecting people I knew, and I wanted to learn more about it. So I spent some time online. I got connected to other advocates through like Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from there where I decided that I really wanted to try to change Georgetown's campus about sexual assault. Um, and I don't want to claim that, you know, I did this by myself. There's so many other wonderful activists like Nora West and Liz Peterson, uh, Maddie Moore, Olivia Hinterfield, so many amazing feminists that I've met who are doing this very important work. Um, and slowly over time, I really think that it's it's made a pretty big impact on the way that Georgetown operates. And I've seen it kind of operating differently for a lot of other universities. And so what do you think were the fundamental um, issues that you felt like there had to be a movement around? A lot of it was people's stories. These narratives have such a way of showing beyond, you know, the abstract of Title IX and the campus grievance procedures, just how students are being impacted. Um, And so there are some online blogs and things that I was reading where a really powerful image that kept coming up uh, was survivors holding up posters obscuring their faces but saying the words that administrators Mm -hmm. had told them about their sexual assault and things that were after I researched about Title IX very much on the wrong side of the law but still were being said to people when they were asking their administrators people who were supposed to protect them for help uh, after a violent crime and some of the things were like well you say it's rape he doesn't seem to think it was that he doesn't see it that way and another poster said well, why don't you take some time off campus, go work at Starbucks, and come back after he graduates? I use he, but sexual mm-hmm. assault survivors can be either gender. On these posters, said he. Um, so that just really struck something in me because I, I realized for as much as we have this narrative of pro- you know, progressive feminism and like we're doing a lot better, quote unquote, than we were in the 50s and 60s, the fact that my classmates' fundamental rights to education were being disrupted um, really resonated with me. So it, it was something that really sparked my interest. And in terms of thinking about what we can and can't do on a college campus, mm-hmm. in terms of really looking at the heart of this issue. So there's an administrative and um, management issue of what happens when an assault happens. But what do you think we can do culturally in this little space that we live in to change the kind of narrative around consent and relationships and sex, because I think that it's it's so hard to imagine that we only have an infrastructure when something really traumatic happens to someone. What do you think are the places in the culture that we can really get at the heart of some of these issues? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple things. So the first, we always talk about changing what activists sometimes call rape culture. So mm-hmm. the idea that rape is normal, that it's minimized, and constructing a culture of care for survivors. So what I tell a lot of people, I think when they hear a friend or someone they know from class disclose that they were assaulted, they don't know what to say. Um, And it's really the simple things that you can say to someone, like, I believe you, or I'm sorry that happened, nobody should go through it. Um, Things that just affirm that person's experience and show them that you'll be there for them and that you're not going to blame them for what happened or ask intrusive questions. So that's one area of it. And the second area, I think we need to alter the way we talk about consent, because that's mm-hmm. really at the heart of it. And I think there's a misperception that 
campus sexual assault is just sex with bad communication or it's gone wrong. Or it's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding. What about the gray areas, mm-hmm. right? And I think the, the issue with that is that's just not what the research says. Research mm-hmm. shows us that 90% of college uh, campus assaults are done by serial rapists. Um, and when you when you try to understand how that happens, right, I think a lot of it has to do with the rape, with rape culture. The fact that, you know, if you're at a party, let's say, because uh, a majority of assaults do involve alcohol, um, let's say you people see something that they think is weird, but they don't want to say anything because, you know, it's their business. So that's that's an example of like rape culture at work when we think that if it's sexual, we can't talk about it. And I think that's where the issue of communication and ideas about consent really come in. It's not like, you know, the the perpetrators who need to be educated on consent because what they're doing is, is a crime and it's oftentimes very targeted where they you know, find someone that they want to assault and then give them drinks in order to create this power imbalance and then take advantage of that. But the communication about consent side is really on people who aren't committing these crimes, but are indirectly kind of bystanders in it. Um, So to that end, I think if you're in a direct space where something is making you uncomfortable, just say something, right? Um, It can be as simple as asking someone, are you okay? Or do you know this person? It could be as simple as looking around a party, let's say, and saying, oh, does anybody know who that girl or guy is with? Like, I think that they might need some friends. Um, You know, and if you're super uncomfortable, you can even ask your friend, does that situation in that corner look weird to you? Do you think Mm -hmm. we should do something? So those are things that you can do in that space. And the last thing is I think we need to have better education about sexuality in general Mm -hmm. because people often say oh consent such an awkward topic do i need to get someone to sign a contract before we do anything sexual to which my response that's such a disingenuous question yeah no one no one one thinks thinks that that, right but they're like oh but has political correctness gone too far oh i I have no time for these arguments (laughs) yeah and what i always say is like honestly all we want is for people to be having sex that they they are really genuinely enthusiastic about. How is that something that makes people hesitant or uncomfortable? And it's something we practice in all of our other interpersonal relationships. If I said, hey, professor, you know, can I meet you at your office for to talk over mm-hmm. a paper and you don't say anything, I'm not going to show up at your office expecting, you know, to talk about a paper. Yet we treat sexual relationships and sexual activities in, in the, almost the opposite way that, oh, well, they didn't say no, so... Um, so that's always something that struck me as odd and something that I think that we need to educate about as well. I mean, I find it really alarming, um, the way that, um, that there is a normalization about power and about sexual relationships and silence around it. And I think about the places we see it in the culture, um, when we're kids Mm -hmm. and how confusing that must be. And so when you kind of take a long view of the messages that you think that you've received, over the years or your friends have received that, you know, that contribute to the moment where they're on a college campus and they are really confused about what means what, because, um, everything's a mixed signal in the larger culture. Where do, where are the places do you think young women are getting information about sex or information about relationships? Yeah, it's hard. A lot of it is pop culture. Ah, the worst the teacher, worst, right? <laughs> so fun, but not a I teacher. Know. And I think it's, part and parcel of the fact that we treat sex education in this country as abstinence only like you know in in denmark and 
places in the EU, they talk not only about comprehensive sexual education with like actual facts and, and knowledge, but they talk about the emotional and ethical and moral questions around sexual activity. But here it's like, well, like we can't even discuss this. So there's just kind of this silence. And what fills that void is pop culture. It's what you see on TV. It's like things like Twilight, where it tells you. And that, we were just talking yeah, about Twilight at the last. Everyone just points podcast. To Twilight. Twilight's so creepy. <laughs> it is creepy. Like, oh my gosh, hey, I I yeah. didn't know about Twilight until I was a college <laughs> professor, and my students were like, "You've got to see this book, Twilight." And my niece was reading this, and I was appalled. It's so yeah. creepy. Yeah, the teachers are like. Yo, you know, if a guy is good looking enough, it's totally okay if he he's like creeping outside your, your window, oh, like watches you sleep. That's not <laughs> so creepy. Romantic. That's weird, right? And you know, it's it's even things. Um, I think it's so ingrained in a way that. Uh, so, as part of our theses for women and gender studies, one of my friends, Lexi Daver, wrote a thesis around the new Star Wars movie. We were just talking it. about Star Wars. How there's yeah. no people of color and like the early ones, oh, and yeah. like Suddenly the, it's there's like, like one right. woman in it. The, I I <laughs> yeah. was just talking to That's our last hilarious. guest about. I'm just confused. Exactly. What galaxy is this? Yeah, well, it, whichever galaxy it is, I mean, a lot of uh, fans of Star Wars write fan fiction, um, and my friend Lexi's thesis is about how fan fiction on Star Wars, on this new movie, shows rape culture, because a lot mm. of the people in fan fiction pair together the main antagonist with the feminist protagonist. Um, and the only interaction they have in the movie is what the director has called a mind rape scene, and the parallels are very, very relevant to the idea of sexual assault, where he is forcibly, with his like Jedi mind powers, like assaulting is and infiltrating his, her mind. Yeah, so it's like a, a mind scene, right? But the parallels to rape culture are obvious. And, like, what does it say that a lot of fan fiction writers who are women are replicating this and making it romantic? It shows that we've been socialized about rape culture in a way that we think, like, oh, like, violence or some kind of possessiveness or some some idea of toxic masculinity is what men are supposed to do. It's what is normal. Um, and I think a lot of the conversation is not just about mainstream pop culture, but for my contacts, you know, Indian pop culture or Indian... Um, South Asian narratives about masculinity too, and in Bollywood movies, they they have Bollywood. Like it's too. about these grand gestures, right? Exactly, and it's not yeah. and and isn't part of the kind of narrative arc is that someone doesn't like someone, but then they're won yeah, over. Exactly. So, <sighs> like, if you're a good enough guy, you know, you can get the girl, which makes socializes men to think, oh, okay, like I just need to keep trying. It's when persistence. She says, no, she doesn't really mean it. Which is not just about you know romantic, affectionate, quote-unquote, flirting in Bollywood, but also about sex, right? And there's this really interesting phenomenon in Bollywood. It's called item songs. It's essentially this, like, number that they just put in to, like, kind of show scantily dressed women. Mm -hmm. um, and it just doesn't really make any sense for the narrative plot. But it's literally just there to, like, you know, be kind of sexual and fun. Mm -hmm. But the issue in a lot of these item songs is that the women are just there to be sexual objects. They have no role in the film. This is their only, like, appearance. And the hero, the person that people are supposed to emulate and think is the protagonist, is being really creepy, you yeah. know, like getting really close in their personal space, grabbing them. It's, and it's, it's, really, it's really hard because when we talk about pop culture images, it's not just, you know, looking at a Western lens, but for South Asian communities, a lot of the socialization around sex is Bollywood movies. And if you are in a village and the only time that you're going to be talking about sex, maybe you're experiencing some kind of socialization is when the village gathers around giant screen to watch the latest, you know, Bollywood movie that came out. 
and you see these heroes doing it, you might think like, oh, this is what is normal. This is what is good and, and hip and what I should be aiming towards. In my and this is what it means reactions. to be grown up. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think this is really fascinating because um, so there's there's a conversation that you have as an activist about policy and about procedure. And then there are the conversations you have with your friends. And I think that this idea of asking people to be responsible bystanders and, you know, ask them to kind of intervene, what do you, where do you think the resistance to that comes? Why is it so hard to convince people that they should actually say or do something if something does not look right to them? A lot of it is because it's scary. It's mm -hmm. scary to put yourself out there. You don't want to be that girl at the party who is, you know, bringing down everybody else, who is being, like, the mom, I've been called. Like, you know, it's 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 hard to, especially with the pressures in college about reinventing yourself, finding yourself, um, having fun at college. There's a lot of weird pressure to, like, always have fun in college, right? Yeah. Especially freshman year. It's like, everyone's having fun except, except you, right? Um, <laughs> and I think that's part of it. It's just the... At its core level, the, the fear of being seen as uncool or mm -hmm. bringing, it's almost like by intervening, you're bringing sexual assault into the party, right? Like by saying to someone who's taking home, let's say a very inebriated person, hey, who, you know, do you know this person? Are there friends here? I'm not comfortable with you taking them home. Mm -hmm. You're basically looking at the person and saying, in so many words, I'm afraid that you're going to assault this person, which is a really hard thing to, to indirectly say. And I think it makes people really uncomfortable. And, you know, I understand that from the other perspective, I have a lot of male friends who've asked me, you know, I go out with my female friends. One of them has too much to drink. I'm going to like take her home and make sure she gets to bed. But I've definitely been at parties or at other situations where people look at me and be like, wait, what are you doing with this really drunk girl? Yeah. You know? And I've noticed it too, even when I, well, it must be hard for guys, I think. Um, I, I was walking down the street from the library late at night, and there was a guy behind me, and he crossed the other side of the sidewalk. And I was like, why did he do that? I'm like, oh, to make me feel, like, safer. Not creeped out. Yeah, not Because so out. much of your socialization, yeah. and from my perspective as a young woman, is to be afraid all exactly. the time. Exactly. And my husband sometimes says this to me you know, that men don't realize that they're scaring women just by existing in this yeah. culture. So like when you get on an elevator and a man gets on and he just wants to get off of a floor, just like you do, yeah. but there's always the culture reminding you that he can hurt you I know. or he wants yeah. to hurt you. Or if he hurts you, it's your fault. So there's yeah, this, exactly. there's this constant narrative that's running, right? right? And everyone's trying to just kind of exist in it. And so I wonder if, um, I, w I just wonder how do we get to that as well? Oh, I have this great analogy that I'm mm -hmm. going to share with you. It's something I read online. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to tell all of my male friends who say, well, like, you know, I wasn't being, I was just paying her a compliment by saying what a mm -hmm. nice dress or like you're mm -hmm. beautiful or smile. Oh, that's my favorite. Like smile. Like, yes, I'm here to smile for you. Um, I was just trying to play her, pay her a compliment. Like I would love it if somebody said that to me. Why is she so, why mm -hmm. did I get an adverse reaction? And the analogy I've heard of is, you know, the idea of a bank, right? So all of our, when we're little, we've been told banks are good. You put your money in a bank, something you'll do when you're older. It's great, right? And then we get older into our teens and the financial crisis hits and there are <laughs> bad banks and there are good banks mm -hmm. and banks, you know, like some of them don't seem so safe anymore and kind of confusing, but banks are a part of life. You have to just deal with them. So you're like, all right. 
So then what happens is that as you get older, you decide to buy a house and you put a lot of work into this house. You um, hear more and more of your friends talk about these bad banks and how they're foreclosing people's homes. But you're like, oh, it's fine. You know, I've been really saving. My bank seems okay. I'm, I'm going to be um, working on this house. Uh, maybe you even have bad experiences with your bank and there's some not major things, but little things like overdraft fees that make you feel like a little uncomfortable. Um, and then one day when you're watering maybe your flowers outside your house, someone drives by in a car that has the bank's logo on it and then gets out of the car, stands in front of your house mm-hmm. and looks at it and is like, wow, what a nice house. I think I, uh, then the question is, how would you feel about it? And the response is usually, I'd feel weird. Like, why is this guy stopping to look at my house? Does he want to foreclose on my house? Like, why is he, is he going to try to like, you know, like, I don't know what he's going to do. I'm kind of powerless to do anything too, because it's the guy from the bank. And I was like, exactly. Now just Mm -hmm. like take this analogy and apply it to giving someone a compliment. When you are emphasizing that you're part of a dominant group that has more power over the other individual, that women have been socialized to be afraid of, but not afraid of, but, you know, it's really complicated and they might have had bad interactions with men, but nothing serious or even serious things, you know, you can never know. And then if a guy is there emphasizing his his, quote unquote maleness to you and saying, wow, what a nice house, what a nice dress, what a nice, Mm -hmm. whatever, your, your first reaction is fear and, and confusion and feeling creeped out. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of gotten through to some of my male friends about mm-hmm. why women are are afraid. It's like not it's not them. It's the way that we've been socialized. It's all of this stuff that's being packed into that tiny sentence of nice dress or you're pretty. Well, I think that the the other thing that is so difficult about this work and I feel very strongly because I just think, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Um as an institution of higher education to combat the culture, mm-hmm. you know, attend to the survivor, you know, put like it's, it, it's massive work and I don't think it's impossible, mm-hmm. but the level of education that needs to be done so yeah. everyone is on the same page and understands the impact. Right. That's the part that feels daunting. Yes. Um, as, and you know it better than I do because you do that work. But I think about, um, you know, the conversation that is now happening nationally Mm -hmm. and you have um, documentaries like the hunting ground and people are trying to ask different questions. Where do you see this intervention um, working really well or helping to shift the culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of the times we never talk about how is it working? How's it helping? Because so much of our work is just like, everything is terrible all the time. (laughs) More and do more of it. Like schools are violating title nine everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's working because it's something I've noticed, right? Like Georgetown just instituted over the time I've been here, uh, mandatory workshops for all incoming students. Mm-hmm. The first time I did a workshop, people were asking, like, what is rape culture? What is victim blaming? What are these things? What is happening? Right. And I just did my last one. And I looked around the room of freshman students. They were saying things like they're just dropping, dropping language. Like, yeah, we can't victim blame or like. It's Tumblr that's doing it. Yeah. It's like, so part of it, I think it's like the conversation that students are having is changing. And it makes me hopeful because if we can get schools are so full of potential. Universities are such a great place to put in anti-sexual violence programs. Even the military, they both have huge problems, but because they're kind of microcosms that you can evaluate the effectiveness of things and you can test programs out. 
it's is good in two ways because first you can see which programs actually work and then implement them on bigger levels, right? Maybe statewide, maybe locally, maybe for you know high schools. We should be talking about consent and the idea of you don't need to give people hugs if you don't want to in preschool. Um, but on the second level, if we train students to have this conversation and understand these facts before they graduate, it's not like they disappear once yeah. they hopefully they don't, you know, disappear after they graduate. So they can go into their respective professions and teach their kids and hopefully institute some kind of culture change. Um, so I think that's one area of it. The second area that I've been happy to see is the national conversation. Some of it is misguided, though well-intentioned, like the what I like to call the Unsafe Campus Act, where they basically get rid of Title IX reporting and say, yeah, let's have all survivors go to the police, which, you know, I don't know if they realize that only one in ten rapists ever spend a day in jail, and a lot of survivors don't want to have three or four ten-year-long trials while they're in college, but, you know, it's it's a measure, it's, it's not a good one, um, but... There are good things in the national conversation, like the White House Task Force has issued a report, um, the president and the vice president's support, mm -hmm. the fact that Lady Gaga talked about sexual assault and performed about it at, at the Oscars, like, that's amazing. We were not having these conversations even two years ago. So I'm really happy to see the national conversation changing. I think the biggest issue right now is almost a product of that as a corollary, uh, there's so much guidance and recommendations and, you know, not only legally through Title IX, but also recommended guidance from the White House or best practices or all of this stuff that is being thrown at schools. It really gets to the question that you had before is how as an institution can we support survivors when there's just so much, right? Um, and that's something I think schools are really grappling with because I think in some cases, you know, I like to believe, at least for my own activism, that administrators are not here to silence survivors. What they're doing is because of, you know, bad training or just misunderstanding. In some cases, maybe it's some malcontent, but I, I don't, I don't want to believe that. Right. Um, but I think that that's an issue that we haven't, we need to do more on. We need to not only give, we can't just like throw the book at schools. We need to give university administrators training on how to be trauma informed, how to just deal with survivors, what what to even say when someone says I was raped, because a lot of them don't even, you know, there's that awkward moment of, I don't even know what to say. Um, so we need to have that kind of trauma-informed training for administrators and figure out how administrators are dealing with, with it emotionally and dealing with um, how they approach students. Um, because it's not enough for a school just to have policies and things thrown at them. I, a lot of the times it's got to be the individual administrators who are interfacing with survivors and they need to know what to do. So more training. <laughs> and I think that you've played a large part in those shifts um, culturally. Well, thank you. And I'm so <laughs> proud of you. I know. And I think I think Know Your Nine mm -hmm. has done a really great job in, in getting that information out at various levels. And also I think that um, this is this is so difficult um, for me personally because from where I sit, the pervasiveness of the experience of sexual assault among the young people, men and women that I work with mm -hmm. is sometimes it's so overwhelming to think about 
the victimization that so many of the students that yeah. I, I work with have been through and, and, and how few of them recognize it as victimization right. and how, you know, as you get older and people tell you things, you say, wait a second, something really bad happened. Yeah. And, you know, having to negotiate the fact that we are among communities that a lot of people have been traumatized in a way that they will never talk about. Yeah. And so what are some of the ways that um, if you were going to give me advice as an educator, things that I can do either in the classroom content that I do teach about or in just my interactions with students that can make me more effective in, in solving this problem? Sure. That's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do with how you approach the conversation. And I know there's like this big national conversation about trigger warnings and like, oh, you're just coddling students. Can I tell you, I have no time for that. I actually, I'm a big believer what you can call it whatever you want just letting people know what's going to happen i I, like i don't i don't understand for analogies by the way everyone when i go to a restaurant i've never been to i read the menu beforehand so that i have a sense of what the restaurant offers maybe that makes me a terrible person maybe i should be (laughs) more open to surprise and similarly if i am going to assign a book that has a lot of this material i just send a note to everyone saying look folks we're going to be reading this book it's got this content in it, and I understand why it's so upsetting. And here are the resources on campus. I've silenced no one. Yeah. I have not changed what I've taught. But I think that people are entitled to know if right. they're going to have to do a deep dive into really terrible yeah, exactly. stuff. Which when people say, like, oh, trigger warnings are so, you know, disempowering because you're saying, hey, you can't handle it. I'm like, no, it's the complete opposite. It's the idea that it's empowering for for someone to say, hey, this is going to have this material. You have options about how you want to deal with it. And that's okay. I think it's disingenuous to suggest it has no impact on us as educators. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's a excellent book by um, a scholar named Danielle McGuire. um, And her whole argument is, you know, if we think about the civil rights movement through the lens of activism, Um, around sexual assault against black women, we get a new timeline and a new perspective on civil rights. I mean, it's a brilliant book, and it's about Rosa Parks' activism on behalf of sexual assault survivors. And um, there's some parts of it that are really upsetting. Mm -hmm. And I sign the book at least once a year. I think it's an incredible book, and it can be upsetting, and it can be really helpful. Like, all of these things can exist at the same time. No one's head explodes. And so (laughs) I think about that, um, but I think about it more intentionally now because of this national dialogue. I think I would have said, okay, this book's got some material that's a little upsetting, but I think taking the time to say, you know, this material's really upsetting to me also. Yeah, That I'm reading this alongside you, and it's none of it's good, but let's think about, like, some of the questions that we can now... Yeah, and I think that that's a great additional point about what educators can do. It's just, like, it's okay to express these emotions. It's okay to say, this is an upsetting issue, or I'm sorry that happened to you, or just, like, to... To show students that you are also there with them at, at, at that space, at that at this place of struggle when you're reading a book. Like isn't it's that great Audre Lorde quote that like education is is risky inherently, right? It's it's the idea that you are willing to take that risk along with students. I think it's something that really resonates. And you know, w- with the idea also of just like communities of color and sexual assault, it's something I wish we talked a lot more yeah. about in college campuses. Because Title IX has provisions that are designed to be empowering for um, diverse experiences, right? So it's not just, uh, you know, sports, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. it's, it's sexual assault survivors, but it also pr- protects um, women in STEM. <laughs> Excuse me. It also protects uh, trans people. Mm-hmm. It also protects, um, you know, people who might come from different 
uh, socioeconomic backgrounds because it requires, you know, it allows for uh, housing accommodations, educational accommodations, work accommodations. It allows um, girls who are pregnant in high school yeah, to continue exactly, their education. Continue education. So there's all of these things that I think part of it is because the media chooses, chooses specific narratives to focus on, but we, there, there's so much stuff in there that is supposed that, that can be intersectional mm-hmm. if we just kind of look at it in a lens of not just privileging certain narratives of people who do have privileges, mm-hmm. college camp survivors in some ways are privileged, yeah. we have educational privilege, you know? Um, but if you look at it from the perspective of how to be inclusive, there's all of this other stuff that I wish we talked more about. I think that was one of the things, um, that again, my my concerns about where this work goes. Yeah. You know, does it go off the campus to the homeless shelters and into the homes and to the different places where we see sexual violence um, happen to yeah. so many people? And how do we come up with a cohesive narrative about resisting a culture of violence that isn't about you know this? If it happens to this group of people, then it's important. Right. Exactly. Um. And then one of the events from last year was about women of color and sexual assault and you know and these very specific questions about policing and relationships to um you know the carceral state this becomes really really complicated exactly and so that's something that i've really noticed in my own activism i always say georgetown by the time you graduate you will be forced to reflect at least (laughs) once right that's what we do we reflect a lot so i was reflecting about it sophomore year and i was thinking that my experience with sexual assault activism has always been colleges, right? And usually the students and I speak certain language, we have certain common connections, a level of educational and socioeconomic privilege. And I really was like, you know what, I'm not getting the full picture about what sexual violence looks like. And that's not good for my activism. So I decided to intern at this wonderful organization. It's called DC Survivors and Advocates for Empowerment. It's located at the DC courthouse, but they also have a location by United Medical in uh, in Anacostia, mm-hmm. and they predominantly they basically help um, communities of generally community women from communities of color get civil protection orders, mm. and that's so important because a lot of people don't understand that there are various reasons why survivors don't want to go through the criminal justice right. process. A lot of it, as we're learning, is you know the racialized way that people are treated, and what happens you when know? survivors have their own poli- yeah, like exactly. records. I mean, when we look at this case in Oklahoma City mm-hmm. of the police officer who's preying on black women, yeah, and part of um, the the pattern of of identifying victims are women who had been involved yeah, exactly. in the you know criminal so you court system, anything. and you right. can't say anything, and so. When you add that layer of it, yeah. it's just it's yeah. a, an when added you, challenge of the work. I mean, yeah, the, the issue of like you know historical trauma against communities of color by by the judicial system by by police. Um, I think it really changed my perspective on like what sort what sexual assault looks like. And I remember, you know, we sit in these cubicles, and I was doing the same intake and advocacy as the other advocates there because unfortunately in this work, um, you know, people cycle through really fast because it burns mm-hmm. people out. I think the average time that people spend doing crisis intervention is something like six or seven months yeah. before they it's too much because it's hard, right? Um, and I remember that I had one client who came in and I really like was really struggling to get her the needs that she, she needed, which was, you know, shelter and food stamps and a Metro card and these things that we never think about here mm-hmm. on campus, you know, when we all swipe into Leo's and don't need to worry about those kinds of, of things. Um, and I, at the end of it, I got her everything she needed. I wrote her protection order. I was feeling really good about myself. It's like, oh, job well done, Jonathan. <laughs> Pat on the back. You're such a great advocate. So intersectional. Um, and then she looks at me. She's like, 
by the way, do you have anything to eat like right now? Because I haven't eaten in 12 hours. And that was a moment where I really had to take a second and think, you know, like to me, this is like a great work. This is a day of advocacy. I feel really great for her. This is another day in her life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's something that we need to recognize in the college sexual assault campus movement. It's not just about our privileged narratives in some ways. It's about creating a culture of change that empowers and is inclusive of change for survivors who are not on college campuses, who are outside Georgetown's gates. Um, And that's something that we still really struggle on because there's so many layers of matrices almost of like oppression and injustice that they have to deal with to the point where they're like, you know what? Yeah. Like my sexual assault wasn't the worst thing. It wasn't even how I identify. I identify as, you know, someone who's struggling under, um, you know, the, the, TANF or food stamps, essentially, I've identified these are the things that are more pressing for me. Mm. And that's really, that's really, you know, something that we need to discuss more and talk about. Um, so I'm sorry, I forgot your original question. No, that was such a, going off no, it's such a beautiful <laughs> testimony because I think it's, because I think it's, it, it, that's the part that's complicated. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's really beautiful. Well, thank you for having this incredible conversation with me. I'm going to ask you the one question that I ask everyone on the podcast. If there's one thing you wish all your professors knew about you or you could say to them, what would it be? I think as a senior, I would probably just express gratitude for the things that they've taught me. And then I'd ask them or I'd challenge them maybe to think about in the ways that they teach material and the ways that they interface with students, ways that they can allow themselves to be more emotionally vulnerable. Because I think that is really the core of how you build intersectional feminist advocacy. It's the idea of letting yourself be a little risky, be in a space where you say to students, this is hard, or I'm struggling with this, or if you need to talk to someone, you can talk to me. You know, it's, it's that, if that's how you build emotional bonds with people, and that's how you, you can gain, I think, the the ability to to talk to students in a different way and to to help them when they're struggling, right? I, I think um, a lot of times professors want to want to say that they have all the answers and the world is a safe place and here is the subject material we're going to learn it you're going to do great on your exams and then go on to the next step, but I think that's an oversimplification of just the way education and knowledge works, right? We always have to be challenged and be nuanced, um, and I really think that component of just being vulnerable is is how you get more support for sexual assault survivors. It's how we get more support for communities of color, for people who are experiencing violence in so many different ways. Um, And that's something I wish that they could model for students and to teach them that's okay to do in a professional environment. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. (laughs) Such a great conversation. (laughs) Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media on Twitter at Office Hours Pod and on Instagram on Office Hours Podcast.